Well, thank you once again to our worship team. The last hymn that we were singing uh, has a line in it that has become one of my favorites, and that is the line, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. That actually would be a better theme for this entire month in October. It fits Psalm 2, and I always wrestle with titles for sermons. That's kind of one of the last things I think about, and sometimes, quite frankly, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it at all. Uh, But an inheritance of nations is what I want you to be thinking about, not just in the course of our time in the Word this morning, uh, but throughout this month. There are promises given to us which are of such significance that it really should not only define who we are as the people of God, but it should shape our mission in this world. It should shape how we live our lives, how we invest our dollars, how we spend the time, limited as all of those resources are. And we're going to explore some passages in the course of today's message and then in the balance of this month that I think will be a great encouragement to you. Before we do that, though, we need to pray. So would you bow with me, please? Father, thank you for the promises of your word. We have sung through many of them and and read some of them. And we are mindful, Lord God, that you have given these promises, not just to reveal your purpose and will, but to strengthen our faith. And we take these promises as you have given them to be true, undeniable. They are absolutely sovereign in that they will all be fulfilled. And you've said all of my promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We believe you when you say all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. We look at our world today and say, Lord, we do not know how you will turn the nations and the communities back to you that seem so hardened in sinful thinking and living. But we believe that your gospel purpose will go forward as you've purposed. We believe your word as we read it through Isaiah's prophecy, I will make you, my people, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We know that is true because you first of all made your son, our savior, that great light for the nations. And now he has commissioned us That's a good word because many of us feel very ineffective, unprepared even, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even our feeble attempts often are met with resistance or indifference, and we feel like failures so often, but we believe your word, not our feelings. We believe your promise through Malachi that from the rising of the sun to its setting, your name will be great among the nations. And in every place, worship will be offered in your name, pure offerings to the living God. For you have said, my name will be great among the nations, thus saith the Lord. So let your purposes stand. Let them stand in our souls today. Mighty tower of strength that our weak and often confused faith might grow. And that our vision for this gospel work in our world might match uh, your eternal purposes. 
bless our gatherings this month especially and give us a vision for what you desire to do right here in our neighborhood in Utah. And may the name of the Lord be praised as a result of the effort of this church and others like it. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I actually, before we go to Psalm 2, just want to remind you of one of the core values of Gospel Hope is purposeful multiplication. And if you go to our website, you can see all the core values. There probably are too many. We've been joking of late. Who can remember 12? Uh, We probably need about three. That might be memorable. But for the time being, until we make that revision, we do believe and are committed to purposeful multiplication. And we try to give a little two-sentence, three-sentence summary of it with these words. By means of the church, God displays His character and declares His message to a lost and broken world. We believe that the gospel's work naturally eventuates in the formation of new churches. Therefore, we will invest in reproducing church-planting churches in strategic communities throughout the Salt Lake Valley and beyond. Now, the Scriptures shape this statement as it is, and though we're not quoting the Scriptures directly, that little summary flows out of what we have come to, to believe is God's Word, is His purpose and plan. And so through the month of October, we're setting aside these four Sundays for a special emphasis on church planting, or the start or establishment of new churches. And, and church planting is simply the establishment of new churches in communities that need a gospel witness, and there are actually a lot of them in the state of Utah. And for those of you who are new with us, Gospel Hope is partnered with Gospel Grace Church, uh, a church downtown, city center, just the southeast corner of Liberty Park. That was a true church plant. Eight years ago, Gospel Grace did not exist. Gospel Hope is a revitalization. Our church is actually older than theirs. It It operated under the name of Trinity Baptist Church for many, many years. And we're, what, 30 years old? Pastor Lloyd is the founding pastor of this. So we're we're about three, well, not you personally, but (laughs) just the church, right? And we we have created a, a partnership or sister churches with a view of planting other churches. Now, here's the really exciting thing. Uh, if you go to the Plant for the Gospel website, and Plant for the Gospel is just kind of a little umbrella organization. I mean, it, it's, it's barely official. We just felt like we needed something, and really it was more Gospel Grace's ideas than ours. They already had going when some of us showed up. Plant for the Gospel is an organization under which we, we want to steward the resources of people and time and money for the establishment of new churches. Now, you can barely see it on the screen, but do you see at the very bottom center? Some of you say, well, that's new. Yeah, exactly. Gospel Peace Church is the newest church planting venture that uh, we're all committing to. And you're going to be able to meet the team next week in our service here that God willing will move to Logan, Utah within the coming year and plant Gospel Peace Church. It's starting to put some pressure on our little church planting team here. Like, you know, I think love is the next thing that would be up to bat. So, Gospel Love Church. 
I shouldn't joke about that, because if you guys felt led of the Lord to like name it something like that, then I might not have done you any, any favors there. But next Sunday morning, um, Paul Campbell, who's the lead pastor of that team, will be here, and the other members of the team and their families, and we're, we're very honored to have them, and we'll let them tell a little more about that work. And then Sunday, October 18th, Will Galkin, who's one of the pastors at Gospel Grace, but who oversees this plant for the gospel effort, is coming to preach, and that will fall the, at the end of a four-day vision trip uh, where a number of people are actually coming to Salt Lake just to hear more about the opportunities and the needs, and then um, you, you'll probably meet some of them. We suspect some of that group will be with us Sunday morning, October 18th, and then finally, the last Sunday in October, Nick Peterson will be preaching and sharing just a little bit more about vision for planting a new work in the Saratoga Springs area. So two things that you can do and should do. The first would be this. Pray, pray, and pray some more. Uh, That vision trip will be a key time. There are some folks coming out who are praying about relocating to to Utah to help plant churches. Uh, There's a young guy coming. He and his wife visited here a year ago, and they're 98% sure they're going to move just a partner. He's not a pastor, but he, he and his wife have a heart to maybe join one of these church plants, and so we'll... God willing, be able to introduce him to some of you. But there, there are people like that coming who want to know God's will, should they move. Others are coming who actually have financial resources to invest. And like every other venture, it does take money, but God will provide. Um, so that's a, that's a key four-day period, October 14th through the 18th. And then just note your, on your calendar, Sunday evening, October 18th, will be the next Saratoga Springs Church Planting Prayer Meeting. And those are really important to what's going to happen, God willing, in the, in the coming years. So I just want to put those things before you. It's going to be a great month. It's going to be a great month. A couple of days ago, Kristen and our daughter Kate were talking in the kitchen, and I was eavesdropping from the den uh, just a few steps away. And the immediate discussion had to do with just more of the crazy headlines that just roll through every single week. Everything from the playground brawl that some people call the debate uh, to the updates on how COVID is spreading and the numbers. And, you know, there's always, there always seems to be kind of the rage of the day. Like our culture's offended about something. And so, you know, somebody starts it off and, and many people jump on a, the latest rage bandwagon. But I thought it was interesting that my daughter, who's 22, said, you know, nothing surprises me. Nothing surprises me. And I thought, you know, she's pretty young to be saying that. But she reminded us that she was two when 9-11 hit. And really, you think back over the last 20 years, the, the multiple generations that have lived through all of this have experienced more difficulty and a string of crises maybe than many other generations. We're not the only one. But I, I was saddened to hear her say that in some respects, and yet at the same time not surprised. I believe her. I feel that way myself on many days. And I'm not sure, honestly, if it's because I'm just numb at this point or I'm actually growing calloused, which there is a little difference between just being numb to what's going on. Being calloused actually scares me, and I I never want to be calloused to the difficulty and even tragedies of, of the world we're living in. But then I come to the Bible. Then I come to God's Word, and I read things that amaze me and actually lift me beyond some of those day-to-day issues that we're all living with. And there are many things in the scriptures, I'll tell you, that, that puzzle me, 
There are some things that actually perplex me. There are things that confound me. And even after all these years of reading through the Bible, of studying it, uh, of trying to understand more and more, there are things that, that not only confound but confuse me. But then there are things also that perpetually astonish me. And Psalm 2 is one of those passages. And so I want you to turn in your Bible to, to Psalm 2. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures in front of you, uh, you're welcome to use one of the pew Bibles uh, in, the, in the book racks in front of you. Uh, or you can look at the screen and follow along as I read just 12 verses in Psalm 2. And this psalm has been given the title, The Reign of the Lord's Anointed. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Quite a remarkable psalm, and it begins with the rage of the nations. And I want you to think of these four particular characteristics. And some of these photographs are familiar, but I want you to think beyond the immediate turmoil in our nation right now, because what the psalm is speaking of is actually speaking of a similar kind of of rage and conspiracy and plotting and, and such, but it goes beyond that to eternal proportions. We've seen images that capture for us what rage really looks like. And the nations, as, as the Lord reveals them here, are the peoples or the tribes, the clans, the various ethnic groups of planet Earth. And they're described as behaving violently. The word rage speaks of, of congregating in commotion. There's great anger that's pent up in the souls of the nations, and it is rage We'll see in a moment against God. He also uses the word plot. The people's plot. Now he describes it as what is in vain. But this speaks of actually murmuring murderously. It speaks of planning secretly. Of devising uh, all kinds of strategies against God. The third term is the kings set themselves against God. They actually are taking a defensive position. I use this particular image, if you can see it, of that that unbelievable moment where people actually thought they could take over one of the cities in the Northwest. And they established a variety of barricades and signs and warnings and whatnot. And ultimately, all of that was taken down. And, And I think it's just as futile for the nations of the earth to think that they can barricade themselves against the great God of heaven. But that'll give you a visual image for what the nations of the earth are here described as doing. And the fourth thing is they take counsel together. 
There is conspiracy underway. The greatest conspiracy in the world today, though, is not a deep state conspiracy that wants to oust our current president or bring in a kind of of political worldview or establish socialism or communism. Those Those are surface conspiracies rooted in a deeper spiritual conspiracy against God. And what is remarkable as we read through this description, we, we come to see in verse 4, the outcry of their hearts is ultimately against God, where they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage? They're doing it because they do not want the lordship of God Almighty. The bonds that they speak of in verse 3 are the restraints that they feel God has put upon their freedoms. The cords that are spoken of in verse 3 would be a synonym for those bonds. It's whatever keeps them from doing what they want to do. And the irony is that people who want to throw off the lordship and authority of the God of heaven fancy themselves to be free, but they're actually not. And we've looked even in recent weeks in the study of Titus that the the natural human born in sin, born with a sin nature, is captive and prisoner to that sin unless something uh, changes. I was thinking about this, how sad it is really that the bonds and cords that God would place upon us are the bonds of love. For that's what his law is all about whether in Leviticus 19 where it is first specifically given or through the Gospels where Jesus stands and speaks as Matthew records for us, summarizing the law, saying two great commands, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second is like unto it and really is tethered inextricably to it, love others as you already love yourself. And these are the bonds that the nations would throw off. Oh, this this grievous sin and corrupted part of our nature that says, I want to be my own God, I want to be my own king, I want to be autonomous, is one of the deadliest aspects of our sin. And so here these nations are portrayed as raging and peoples or ethnic groups plotting against God, the kings and rulers setting themselves against Him, conspiring against Him and saying, let us burst their bonds the bonds of God and His Messiah, and cast away their cords from us. And what is God's response? Look at verse 4. He laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Not because he thinks it's a joke, as if something silly is underway, but he laughs because of how ludicrous it is for people like us to think that we could throw him off. The next phrase is that the Lord holds them in derision. Did you ever have a sibling who took the very words you spoke and mocked you with them? I'm thankful in this respect that in many ways I, 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 I didn't have to deal with that sibling rivalry and abuse that some have had to deal with. I have two older sisters, one younger. Two older sisters are six and four years older than I am. My younger sister's three years. We were a little closer than I was with my older two, but I, I just avoided some of that you know, sibling rivalry and the, the picking that, that goes on. And some of you can probably remember a, a, an older sibling maybe pinning you to the ground. And I remember witnessing this and, and maybe even happened like with other friends or, 
or, or whatnot. But, but the image that comes to my mind is like an older sibling pinning a younger sibling to the ground and then taking that child's hands, that sibling's hands, and using them to hit himself or herself and then saying, why are you hitting me? Why are you hitting me? Or something like that. Any of you experienced stuff like that? Some of you are grinning at me like, yeah, 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 lots. That would be an example of derision. And in a sense, God is going to take the very words that these have spoken and speak them back to these rebels in a way that shows the foolishness of their raging. All the counsel and conspiracy, all the raging and rioting against him is really a laughable and pitiful spectacle. But look at the text again in verse 5, because he doesn't simply respond with that laughter and derision. He addresses the rebellion. And the scriptures tell us, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. He's going to speak and act in a way that they actually are struck with terror. What terrifies them? Well, notice what he says in verse 6, because this is the first word that terrifies them. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Say, so why would that terrify them? Because ultimately he's speaking of Jesus, right? I mean, don't we all love Jesus? The answer is no, we do not. We get a little taste of this in the political cycle right now. Uh, there's an innate rebellion in all of us. And, and, you know, if you're a conservative, what does the thought of Joe Biden's election do to you? Terrifies. And if you're a progressive, what does the thought of four more years of Trump do to you? Terrifies. Because whatever values you hold are diametrically opposed to the values that the candidate of the opposite party holds. And some of you are, are really pious and say, well, that's why I'm not voting for either one of them. I have my third party candidate. Good for you. Still proves that if either one of those dudes are elected, you're terrified, right? Well, that's part of the reason there will be terror in the nations when they realize that King Jesus has been appointed. Because the the values, if I can put it this way, of Jesus, of holiness, of righteousness, of grace, of mercy, of this kind of love, are countercultural to the unregenerate heart. They wouldn't want a king like this because every decision he made, every decree he issued would run counter to their very nature. The depravity of humankind is of such a grim and ugly nature that to think of a good and righteous, holy and true king like Jesus Christ being enthroned is wholly terrifying. But there's another aspect of terror that rebelling nations and people groups will experience. It's recorded in Revelation. Turn there with me, please. I don't have this on a slide uh, to, to be projected on the screen for you, but it's the last book of the Bible, the last book of Scripture recorded by the Apostle John, and there are a number of visions that will take place at a future time that God has given to the Apostle John, and one of those is recorded in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 12. And, and the seals of the scroll of heaven, which many just go a little deeper and say, that scroll is the title deed of the universe, if you will. And it's actually Jesus who has the authority to open this scroll and to break all of these seals. And there are seven seals. And when the sixth seal is broken, and this is at the, 
very end of the age. These are things that are yet to come. But look at what John describes. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The world has not seen cataclysm like this cataclysm. Now verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? What a turn. What a turn from Psalm 2 where the same nations are described and represented as conspiring against this great God and his appointed king, thinking that they might unhatch a plot or build some kind of defense against him where they could shut him out, overthrow him, cast off his bonds, cast off his cords, and be free from him. But he works in such a powerful way that he brings all of these rebel nations and people groups under his subjection. He will terrify them. And my friend, if you live your life as a rebel, he will terrify you. You must not think of these passages as if they're for another time, another place, another people. If you are not living in submission to the Son and to his Father, you too will experience these horrific moments. Let's go back to Psalm 2. He addresses the rebellion, but now he establishes his king. He establishes his king with a decree, but there are multiple parts in this decree. Look at verse 7. Now God says, I will tell of the decree. He's saying in so many words, I'm going to narrate to you exactly what will happen. And the word decree speaks of an authoritative rule. And so we begin there. It's a decree. As he establishes his, his king, first of all, it's a decree with authority, a decree of divine authority. Now, what's interesting, just a little sidebar, historical note, um, students of, of Jewish history and even the surrounding nations have, have noted that at the coronation of a king, it was very common for a prophet or for another significant uh, member of the ruling class to stand and make a decree about the one who was who was receiving the crown on that particular day. And one author notes uh, that a prophet might read about this king and mark the moment when the new sovereign formally took up his inheritance and titles. Those titles are really significant, and the inheritance also was significant. And that's what you see unfolding here as God the Father speaks particular truths about the title and inheritance of the Son, the King, that he is inaugurating. So it's a decree of authority. Secondly, it's a decree of sovereign identity. Now look at the text. And what is this decree? I will tell the decree, the Lord, notice that's all caps, so it, it, it speaks of Yahweh or Jehovah, the self-existent God, says to me, who's the me? Well, look at what we read next. That helps us figure it out. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There are two times in the, in the Gospels where God the Father speaks audibly from heaven 
and uses the phrase, this is my son. The first is at the baptism of Jesus. The second is at the transfiguration. Both are deeply significant. God the Father doesn't speak of anyone else in the universe in the same way he speaks of God the Son in this way. Now, it is true for all of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are sons of the living God, but we're not sons in the way that Jesus is this son. Hebrews tells us in particular, as that great book opens with this spectacular rehearsal of how infinitely superior Jesus the Christ is to all other beings, one of the things that the author of Hebrews says is that he is much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and now the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's inherited this special title that identifies him not just as the sovereign choice, but as the sovereign one. Everything that God Almighty is, Jesus is. We enter again, even through Psalm 2, the mysteries of the Holy Trinity. One God existing in three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. We use words even like consubstantial to try to describe this relationship. There's never been a king like Jesus the Christ. There never will be a king like Jesus the Christ. There's never been a title granted to another person like the Son as God the Father grants to Jesus in this particular psalm. He's king. It's a decree of sovereign identity. Here's a third thought for you. It's a decree of gospel inheritance. Say, now where do you see that? Well, look at it. Verse 8, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, it could be that a king with this kind of authority and power would just set out with his mighty armies and conquer every nation and every ruler that stands against him and lay claim and say, the nations are now mine. But that's not what you see unfolding in Scripture, is it? No, as a matter of fact, you would see a couple of these phrases found in verse 8 recurring in the Gospels at a couple of key moments. And those phrases have to do with the nations and the ends of the earth. And I want to walk you through just a couple of those. One of those appears at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. After the resurrection, Jesus gathers his disciples. They, they stand in one of uh, what I think is one of Christ's favorite places, takes them up on a mountain, he begins to speak to them and says to them these words, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Well, who gave it to him? The same God who's recorded in Psalm 2, saying, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. But then notice what he, what he goes on to say. Out of, out of that real state of his authority, all authority, he says, go therefore and make disciples of what does it say in red? Read it out loud. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian baptism. That's, that's for another day, though. All nations. Another gospel records at the end of Luke. Again, Jesus speaking to his disciples post-resurrection. And he actually makes reference to the fact that it has been written. And I, I, I want to encourage you, always pay attention to those passages in Scripture where there's reference to a previous word, a prophecy or promise that's been given. And Jesus says 
in this particular portion. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and then pay attention and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to, say it out loud, all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. So there's the phrase repeated out of Psalm 2, a couple of strategic moments. The next two occur in the book of Acts. And Jesus again is speaking in the first chapter. This is right before he ascends from the Mount of Olives, uh, returning to heaven, assuming that rightful place, seated at the right hand of God, as the scriptures tell us. But now he says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and, say it with me, to the end of the earth. You read the echo of Psalm 2? That's a promise that God the Father gave to God the Son as he crowned him. Fourth reference, also from the book of Acts. Now the apostles take up this message. They preach with boldness and might. Thousands are converted in certain services. Sometimes it's one-on-one, but the gospel is spreading and people are repenting and people are believing and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And now the apostles take up this same theme. And in Acts 13, it's recorded, so the Lord has commanded us saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to, what is it? the ends of the earth. One author writes, Our Lord's post-resurrection charges to the apostles emphasize the nations and the ends of the earth pointedly taking up this promise to the newly authenticated king. It has continued to launch missionary ventures whenever its force has come home to the church whose share in it is confirmed by the New Testament's use of this very verse. And I want this just to not just rest on our souls right now, but really find a home in our hearts, to find a home in our minds, to find find residence in our imaginations so that we might not just buy into the promises that were given to Jesus or buy into the vision that he has for reaching the nations of the earth, but that we might begin to feel our souls moved by it. I want you to think in this way. I want you to think geographically. Again, it's kind of hard to see. I love Google Maps. You can go anywhere in the world from your desktop, kind of. Where where was Jesus standing when he gave these promises? Well, he's standing in Israel, two particular locations, one out by the Sea of Galilee, the other right in Jerusalem, or just outside the city at that particular point. Now, you've got to think geographically for just a moment. So he says to his disciples, you, go make disciples of all nations. Don't forget I'm with you. All authority has been given to me, but go make disciples of all nations. And he also uses these words, and and we read one of those phrases in Acts 1.8. Go, not, not just back into the city, not just a little north or east or south, Judea, Samaria. But then he said, to the end of the earth. Let's blow this map up a little bit. Where are we? See the little bubble? We're about 7,000 miles from Israel. 7,000 miles from where Jesus gave the commission. 7,000 miles outside of geography that most of those men were familiar with in that particular day. Riverton didn't even exist. I've shared with you recently, and some of you were 
in on this. Some of you haven't, so I'm, I'm going to go back there again because I want you to think biblically. We live at the ends of the earth. We tend to think the ends of the earth would be places like Antarctica or, or some little spot deep in a jungle somewhere where you know, no civilized person has ever journeyed. I don't think that's how Jesus thought then. I don't think it's how he thinks now. This is what really excites me. You, as a follower of Jesus, are strategically positioned already at the ends of the earth. You don't have to learn a foreign language. You don't have to raise missionary support. You live in a place that long ago Jesus said, it's mine by right of inheritance. But he didn't, he didn't saddle up his war horse and assemble his heavenly armies to come conquer. He commissioned ordinary people, flawed, frail, weak people like you and me to go as his witnesses. That's crazy, but it's divine wisdom. And for 2,000 years, it's been working. And the fact that a handful of us are assembled right here in one of the places that could be described as the ends of the earth is testimony to the wisdom and power and authority of King Jesus. But most of us don't think of ourselves strategically. We think mission and, and gospel work is for somebody else. No, it's for every single one of us who are the people of God. We think that church planting or revitalization or even foreign missions is for somebody else. Stop thinking that way, beloved. Our king is sovereign over all. And there's a great purpose at work in our world today. You are not here by accident. You are part of this king's plan and strategy for claiming his inheritance. So when you sing that hymn line again, and Christ will have the prize for which he died and inheritance of nations, you need to think of how you play a strategic role in that. How's he going to get his inheritance? Through the witness of you and me. Now that's humbling. It's overwhelming. But it's also inspiring. But here's the fourth thing I want you to see in the text. There is a decree of gospel inheritance which, which will move us to, to do things that we might not normally do. But there is a coming judgment. Look at verse 9 of Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I already read to you one passage out of the book of Revelation where the wrath of this king, the lamb, is described. And it is, a, it is a such terrifying weight that people flee to the mountains. I, I do not say this lightly, but I, there are going to be people in this valley who, if they do not turn from Jesus, will probably flee up into the canyons and even to some of those deep caves that have been dug and used for storage of all kinds of things, just begging to be let in there because of what's going to happen in the last days. But there are other passages in Revelation that speak of him, of, of Jesus ruling with a rod of iron and crushing his adversaries like a potter's vessel. One of those is in chapter 12, verse 5. It speaks of Jesus ruling all the nations with a rod of iron. But another is in Revelation 19, 15, where it says, from his mouth, that is from, from this king's mouth, comes a sharp sword. That's how authoritative his word is. He doesn't even need a real weapon in his hand, just his word. And with that sword, he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That makes me tremble. 
because there are people I know and love and there are people that you know and love that if that happened today, they would be under that deadly word of this king. We glory in the gospel inheritance. We should tremble because of the coming judgment. And that's why, reading to the very end of Psalm 2, you come to verse 10, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. See, this is, this is the warning and the wisdom that God issues. There is a coming judgment, but it would be wise for all of us at this point to make sure that, that we are listening to the word of the Lord, lest we perish What's the word of of wisdom here? Well, four parts to it. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. And then take refuge in Him because that's where blessing is. And it's interesting to me that if you go back to the beginning and you lay out those four characteristics of the nations in rebellion and then you just walk through these particular four commands and characteristics, it's almost a one-for-one contrast. I think all of us know what serve with fear means. That just means you live your life in the constant awareness that this great God is over you and around you. Rejoice with trembling. Again, that sense of awe. It's like, I can't believe I'm in personal relationship with this God. I can't believe he's forgiven my sins. I cannot believe he's granted me a portion of the inheritance of Christ. I can't believe all the blessings. So you're just rejoicing with that kind of trembling. It's just so good. And the psalmist uses the word kiss the sun. Now that's foreign to us. But in that day and age, it would not have been. And you've at least seen this on movies or read of it in you know, fairy tale books or whatever. But when, a, when an ordinary person came into the presence of a great monarch, they would very often uh, kiss the hand or the signet ring or sometimes even the foot. And, and that's what the psalmist is saying. You need, to, you need to bow low and show honor to this son. And then finally, you seek your refuge in him because that's, that's where the true blessing is, happy and highly favored. And so that blessing stands in contrast with the terror that awaits the rebel. And you know, if you're seated here today saying, I'm actually a rebel. I've actually been living my life as if I don't want God's authority. I don't want his word. I don't want his law. I don't want his, any, any of his restraints in my life. In his kindness, he brought you here today that you could be warned and leave all of that rebellion behind and step by faith into this place and relationship of blessing. Will you do that? What a contrast. It brings me to a conclusion. I look at this, and all week long I've been thinking, when, what, what are we supposed to do? Well, I, there are many, many things that have come to mind. I've limited to five. And the first thought that the Lord deeply impressed on my heart is that my response and your response to Psalm 2 should be one of humility. Psalm 2 makes us humble because this king is awesome. Don't live your life as if you are the center of the universe because you're not. Psalm 2 makes us humble because this king is awesome. Number, secondly, Psalm 2 makes us prayerful because the nations are raging at this moment. It feels like we're stuck in verses 1, 2, and 3, doesn't it? That's part of the reason none of us are planning vacation time in Portland. Not vacation. Some of you have family or friends in the vicinity. You, you want to go see them, but it, it's not because you're thinking, that'd be a relaxing time. It makes us prayerful because we're right there Psalm 2 makes us restful because our God laughs at the raging. That's his perspective on the chaos in the world. You know, when you're fully in control and you know that you will accomplish your purposes, any, any threat that rolls your way, it just makes you chuckle as you press on. Psalm 2 makes us hopeful 
because Christ will have his inheritance. I love that. I gotta tell you, right now, it doesn't seem like a lot is happening in our neck of the woods. But are we gonna believe what we see with these eyes, or are we gonna rest our eyes and souls on these great promises? Let me take you to one other psalm before I give you the fifth and final response, or one other uh, passage in Revelation 7. Again, John records a future scene yet to be fulfilled and says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, or that is right. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Are you picturing this? First of all, it's a crowd that John says you can't even put a human number on it. It's so vast. It's a crowd of the redeemed and the angels and other heavenly beings like the elders. And we don't know exactly what all these creatures are. But they listen, first of all, to the praise of the redeemed assembly. And, and they are in awe. And it causes them to praise this great God. And they add their amen to what has been said and tack on another verse. It's an incredible scene. But that's something that will come to pass because Christ must have his inheritance. So that brings me to the fifth thing. These great truths make us active. They should. Because the king has ordained you and me to gather the inheritance. So let's do it. Let's do it today as we meet people in our neighborhoods, out and about, while you're pumping gas, buying groceries, going to the workplace tomorrow. We need to be having those conversations continually that basically say, do you know Jesus? You know, he reigns. He, he's God's chosen king. It also makes us active in church planting. And we're going to talk more about that through the month. Christ will have the prize for which he died. An inheritance of nations. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we confess that our faith is small. Our understanding is limited. But your promises are great. They are a beautiful reflection of your magnificent and perfect character you in your glory, you in your holiness, you in your righteousness, you in your omniscience and omnipotence, you as God. Oh, forgive us for living our lives like these rebel nations, thinking that somehow we are sovereign over our own little daily choices, thinking that we have the right to control our own minds, our wills, our, our choices of entertainment, uh, of work, of, of living life on our own terms. How we ourselves must have caused you many times to laugh and yet you continue to pursue us in mercy. And how thankful we are that long before that horrific final day of wrath, there will be a great season of salvation. And it will result in millions and millions of, of an assembly that cannot be numbered, John says, who will gather around your throne and sing praise to the God who rescued them and to the Lamb who shed his blood. Oh, Lord God, secure our souls in Jesus and then move us to courageous, sacrificial, strategic gospel mission. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.